The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Do you believe that children have the right to breathe mask-free or to go outside without the latest booster shots? What about the quote-unquote right to change their gender? Where do rights come from anyway? And why would you trust doctors to give you yours? Join the discussion this month at Unofficial Pediatrics, the Substack blog run by mainstream media's least favorite pediatrician, Dr. Adrian Gaty. Dr. Gaty was one of the first doctors in the USA to speak out against lockdowns, and he continues the fight for childhood innocence and well-being. If you are looking for a doctor who fears God more than he fears Fauci, then look to the second best four-letter word you'll hear today. It's not Z-U-B-Y, it's G-A-T-Y. Check out his blog, Unofficial Pediatrics, at gaty.substack.com. That's G-A-T-Y dot substack dot com. Subscribe today for free and join the battle as he challenges big pharma, big education, and a few more Goliaths along the way. One more time, that's Gaty dot substack dot com. Now back to the podcast. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on another fantastic guest. He is an author, an academic, a researcher, and this is Dr. Piers Robinson. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's very good to be with you. Happy to have you here, Piers. For people who are not familiar with you, please tell them a little bit about yourself. Let's do the introduction. Well, my background is uh, I'm academic. I've worked in academia for 20 years. I now work independently. I'm co-director of the Organization for Propaganda Studies. And at the moment, doing a lot of work with Panda, which is an organization which has been looking into various aspects of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, in terms of discipline area, I come from the background of international politics and communication studies, studying media and foreign policy. And in the last 10 years, focusing primarily on propaganda and conflict situations. And that's what I've mainly published and written about. And that's you, pretty much in a nutshell. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit more about your, your background. How did you get involved in this type of work? 
Well, I mean, I, I did a PhD after my undergraduate degree and at University of Bristol, and uh, I was interested in the question, this is in the 1990s, going back some time, but this was the period of uh, the so-called humanitarian intervention starting to emerge, Somalia, um, Bosnia, Kosovo, and I was looking at the what was known then as the CNN effect, um, the idea that media coverage of uh, suffering people was pushing, triggering decisions to intervene in, in these crises. And that was really sort of what got me on, on the journey of examining media, foreign policy, and then over time, more broadly, looking at questions of propaganda and politics. Uh, I think it was probably the, the Iraq war and in my research projects after that, that I started to become very aware of the question of propaganda and deception. And of course, the Iraq War 2003 was justified on the basis of alleged weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which turned out there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. And it was subsequently established that the intelligence had been manipulated, exaggerated in order to justify that invasion. And I think around 2010, I was looking very closely at that issue because a lot of information came out about both what was happening in America and also happening in the UK in terms of the manipulation of intelligence in order to create a threat which wasn't actually there. And that's when I suddenly started to realize, hey, there's a lot more going on than just this question of media, foreign policy interaction. There's this question of the way in which information is manipulated um, and, you know, running into the machinery of government. Um, and I started to realize at that point, okay, the, the most important thing that we really need to start to understand is, is propaganda. And that's took me down the road, whatever, uh, taking me to today in terms of looking at all things propaganda, whether war and conflict and recently in relation to COVID-19. Mm. I've never heard the term the CNN effect before. So can you go into that a bit deeper and explain what you mean by that? Well, the CNN effect, actually, you're taking me back here because because there was there was the, the original definition was, I think, used to describe the way in which uh, leaders of countries were communicating with each other through CNN. And that was the way it was originally used. But it very quickly came to uh, capture the idea of, of the media driven interventions, as was understood by some. The idea that CNN coverage of crises around the world was powerful and influential enough to actually shape policy decisions in the White House and to cause and trigger interventions. And that's how it's come to be known, I think, since then. I think people such as myself, Steve Livingston, uh, Eitan Gelbauer did a lot of work on the CNN effect. And I, I think the understanding of it is the question of media influencing and driving foreign policy is, is the, the way most people understand the term over time. Um, needless to say, perhaps from my research, it became fairly clear um, that the media was a lot less influential than some people were claiming, that um, what it appeared to be the case is more often that media was um, mobilizing in the support of certain elite blocks, uh, that the media was being used essentially for propagandistic purposes. And so uh, I think but by the time I completed my PhD and put out my, my first book in 2002, I, I think um, some people saw it as a, as a debunking of the CNN effect idea that really 
this was most of the time a, a lot of um, politically driven uh, media coverage and policymakers were acting where they wanted to act and certainly weren't being pushed in directions that they didn't want to go. Um, so that's that was, I think, my assessment. And, and that would be my assessment today. I think there's pro probably even less evidence of that uh, ideal type CNN effect at work today. I think sort of propaganda levels are very high. And I think mainstream or legacy media deference to uh, the establishment is probably worse than it's ever been in history. Mm -hmm. So would you say that you think that now more than ever, the legacy media is doing a poor job of holding governments and officials to account in the way that they should be able to? I mean, the way I see it now with a lot of them is them being the uh, official megaphone of the establishment rather than being journalists who are truly trying to hold the establishment accountable and ask hard-hitting and necessary questions and follow up as necessary it seems that it's uh i'm sure you've probably seen that meme of you know where it said that the media before and it's you know the people it's got the man with the with the megaphone and he's kind of going from the people to the establishment and asking the questions, whereas mm. now the establishment says something and then he <laughs> takes it and the yeah. megaphone is just going out to the people. I'm not sure if you've seen that meme. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've seen that at some point. Uh, I think it, it is definitely worse. Um, and I mean, there are several, several concrete reasons for, for, for making that claim. But you know, if you go back to the 60s, 70s, you had a debate, for example, about the role of the media in the case of the Vietnam War and the idea that public opinion and media criticism U-turned policy in Vietnam. Didn't, it wasn't really as simple as that. There was still media tending to follow the official line most for most of that conflict and throughout most periods. But I think you can go back to that period and you can see some very solid examples of journalists starting to really challenge the establishment. So you had famously Walter Cronkite uh, during the Tet Offensive uh, on, in a CBS broadcast talking about America being stuck in a quagmire and, and so on. And and you had C, Cy Hirsch as well reporting on the conflict. And you, you saw some pretty confident, bold journalism even in the broader context where even back then the media was not being as critical or independent as it should have been. Now, I think fast forward through to sort of post 9-11 um, you know, into the global war on terror phase, we've seen, I can think of no really good examples of journalism in the US context or in any other European context where, where you've seen somebody standing up as you, for example, saw Walter Cronkite on CBS News standing up. And and it's just not there. Um, there are lots of arguments in the literature. People talk about the, um, the limitations on mainstream media resources. So there's less investigative journalism, there's more reliance on press briefings, et cetera. Um, other arguments about the sophistication of propaganda, um, essentially undermining the ability of journalists to, to hold power to account. But I think we're certainly, and now we're into this kind of quite extreme polarized phase with everything that's been happening over the last five or six years, where you almost see this gathering around the, the political center of gravity of the, by the mainstream media. And, and so on issues where 
you know, if, if you're looking at issues, for example, surrounding Trump and the Russia Gate, etc., where you've got so much evidence that, that these things were not as they were presented, and and yet the, the the core mainstream legacy media is still holding the line on that, and I think it is quite quite remarkable, and so I, I think. Yeah, all the indications are is, is that they, they never did a good job, particularly, but there were times there was greater autonomy sort of you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And now we're in a point where it's, it's difficult not to be uh, come across as a little bit extreme. But, but I, I think the way you described it is correct. You know, the, the, the journalists are across multiple issue areas from COVID to foreign policy, not asking obvious important questions of power and a lot of the time they're essentially propagating propaganda and and deception a lot of the time um so we're in a pretty bad state but i mean i did notice that glenn greenwald had tweeted the uh pew studies the pew studies of these surveys every year of trust in in american media and it, i was shocked at how low the figures were and so I think you have a high point in the 60s of maybe 70% of the American public having quite a high level of trust in, in, in broadcast news. That figures down, I think it was well below 20%, and so and also for newspapers. I, I, think, I think that's what it was. But you could see Glenn had the graph, and you could just see the collapse. And, and that is, that's pretty serious stuff if it's getting to a point where you know so many of the public and it's it's working across europe as well and and, and mm -hmm. so on um and, and that's a sign i think that the media has failed and people are realizing that it's failed do you believe that children have the right to breathe mask free or to go outside without the latest booster shots what about the quote unquote right to change their gender where do rights come from anyway and why would you trust doctors to give you yours Join the discussion this month at Unofficial Pediatrics, the Substack blog run by mainstream media's least favorite pediatrician, Dr. Adrian Gaty. Dr. Gaty was one of the first doctors in the USA to speak out against lockdowns, and he continues the fight for childhood innocence and well-being. If you are looking for a doctor who fears God more than he fears Fauci, then look to the second best four-letter word you'll hear today. It's not Z-U-B-Y, it's G-A-T-Y. Check out his blog, Unofficial Pediatrics, at gaty.substack.com. That's G-A-T-Y .substack.com. Subscribe today for free and join the battle as he challenges Big Pharma, Big Education, and a few more Goliaths along the way. One more time, that's gaty.substack.com. Now back to the podcast. I don't believe those polls. Oh, the Pew Studies. Uh, that particular one, for sure, I don't believe. Okay. It. Do you know why? Because I lived through okay. the past. I lived through the past few years, so yeah. I know for sure that more than twenty percent of people <laughs> believe, believe the media because I've watched people's behavior. You know, I've watched people's behavior, and it's very clear that certain narratives, especially with the um, you know the whole pandemic narrative, and in terms yeah. of what I mean, that was not a twenty percent believing and trusting the media right that would look to me like a 90 percent plus trusting and believing the media right because i watch people's actual actions and behaviors and listen mm. to their words so it's one thing for them to poll people and you know it's trendy it's cool to say you don't trust the government and you don't trust the media so yeah. a lot of people are going to say that or maybe they're thinking about certain aspects of the media that are you know not on their side you know if you ask the democrats if you ask a democrat mm. if they trust the media they might think of fox news and be like oh no i don't trust fox so i'll say no you ask uh, someone on the other side and you're like oh well i don't trust cnn and msnbc but 
yeah, I, I think that the trust, regardless of what people may say on a poll, okay. it's obvious to me that the trust is much higher than 20%. Yeah, I mean, you could well be right. I mean, it's pretty worth going back going back and looking closely at those polls and, and so on. But I, I think that's a fair point. In, in, in my experience, I mean, certainly in the European context, and just my experience working in this area and the number of people who I see, for example, in, in the mainstream raising questions about COVID, uh, for example, is that I've seen many more people quite, you know, and still quite mainstream people raising questions about media bias and propaganda in a way that I hadn't ever seen before. Right. Were so they doing that? I, I, were they doing that two years ago, though? No, they they they, they were doing it. No, by by the end of COVID, um, the, the, you could see the criticism emerging, but um, but not before. This is I think this is a, yeah, a function so of I, COVID. So yeah, I think it's 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 easy to ask questions now. Like there's no yeah. there's no skin in the game anymore, right? The narrative has shifted enough that yeah. you can ask those questions that even one year ago, or two, certainly two years ago. Um, you know, people would have been labeled as misinformation or disinformation or called you a conspiracy theorist or whatever. Mm, um, sure. So I, I, I personally wouldn't, I personally don't give much credit to people now at this time after going along yeah. with everything for two and a half years, like to ask yeah. a question at this point, I'm kind of like, well, you sort of, you sort of missed the boat on that one. You're still just sticking with whatever the mainstream narrative is. Mm, sure. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's, that's my personal. Yes, I, I agree. It's, you've got to be very cautious of, of polls and so on, and, and, and in terms of what that's telling you. Um, I, I still think that, I mean, certainly from, from what I can see in the UK context, at least, um, the, the, the questioning and, and the elements, even within the mainstream media, pushing back have, are significant. Um, and so I, I think, you know, we're not in a phase where there is the kind of level of confidence and trust from a large section of the people in the way that we ha we've had in the past. And, and I think one of the indicators of that are the numbers of people who go to independent media now, people who, who listen to people such as yourself, um, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Russell Brand, and so on, Jimmy Dore, all of these people who, I mean, I think if you look at some of Russell Brands um, and Joe Rogan as well, their broadcasts are giving CNN a run for its money. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a sign. That's also a sign. So, you know, you could be right that, you know, maybe a lot of people are still, you know, very trusting and very believing, but there's clearly a, a big body of people who are questioning and going elsewhere. And, you know, if you look at the kind of viewing figures of Joe Rogan and, and certainly Russell Brand, these are these people have very extensive reach and yourself was, would be included in that so and I, I think that's that's a sign of, of things changing um, mm. I don't want to be too optimistic about it but I, I think a lot of people in the mainstream media um, are pretty aware of that as well that they're aware <laughs> that they're sure. seen by a, a significant group of you know articulate intelligent people out there who who are sort of not trusting what they're saying and would rather listen to um, you know, Russell Brand, he's, he's an entertaining and, and I guess some people sort of in the past would not have taken him seriously, but he, he certainly is an intelligent guy and he has some very important things to say and he has a very big following. Um, so I, I think that there are signs of change, but um, we could agree to differ maybe on, but you could be right about the Pew study research polls or always be cautious of big establishments of uh, <laughs> organizations producing polls, definitely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think I think it, you're spot on. I mean, I think Joe Rogan is the most listened to man in the United States of America, um, 
which is phenomenal in itself when you consider all the billions of dollars and decades of existence and the brand name that you know cnn and msnbc and fox news and all of these have and joe rogan and his uh you know one man is being listened to more so that's definitely a trend in in a positive direction mm. something interested i i noticed interesting i noticed you said was that you said that we're in a time of political crisis mm. I, i'm i feel like i feel like that's been said my entire life mm-hmm. um when were we when were we not in a time of political crisis it seems like for the past uh, decade decades we've been in times of political crisis so what what do you mean by that what i specifically mean by that is that i i think and it has been going on for a long time but for a long time we've been seeing our institutions our democratic institutions but also institutions such as media such as academia and civil society being progressively what i describe as hollowed out and and i think this has been a very long process um and you know I, i always like to go back to eisenhower and his departing speech as, as us president when you know of course he warned famously about the military industrial complex and he's obviously was making a very important point and and the point was that you know an apparatus was emerging which was not democratic and it was being done because i think as part of the struggle against communism and the soviet union etc um and some sort is necessary but it was dangerous because because it was undemocratic and of course that's going back a, a long way it's going back to 69 but i think since then there's been i think he was right and i think we've seen a progressive slide and decline of our institutions over that period of time now the crisis i think has has emerged a crisis primarily for us in in the west because we've reached a very extreme point with that I think in 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 my area of study looking at war and conflict um although I think in the 90s I was you know quite a, a good liberal and and I I saw the west as we were a force for good in the world and, and I was very uh, unconscious of the bad things that were being done mm. I think the 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 role of the west in in the use of force belligerence etc in the international system has become more and more obvious to more and more people and also its ability in a situation where there's a changing balance of power now is is become sharply limited now so in, in a way that that's a kind of crisis in in terms of if you want to call it western hegemony or empire whatever term you want to use i think that that is coming to an end i i think that it's not just internal processes of people becoming aware it's also just a changing international situation where i think you know i think any objective reading of of what we're seeing in the world is that you know that unipolar moment is going to an end and and there's a multipolar world emerging and that's creating a crisis in the west so we we've had a western empire which has been engaged in a lot of military action um that's the area which I've studied and most of it's not justified and it's caused terrible damage and many people around the world are very aware of that that's coming to an end um and at the same time i think you know the west is having to slowly adjust to a new world a new reality in the world and that's creating a crisis a real crisis now where um we have huge problems in the finance markets um we have ongoing conflict we have <laughs> we can probably talk for hours about this we we have a collapse in our in commitment to 
um, open discourse and, and so on and free speech. You know, we have we've seen huge levels of censorship during COVID-19, of course, of scientists. Um, and, and all of these are signs of, of I, I think, crisis within the West. So things have got worse. There was stability for a long time. And so if you look at sort of my, my parents' generation, my siblings who are older than me, living through a period of, for people in the West, of stability, growing economy, looking forward to a future where their kids would do better, there would be more material wealth, etc. That's, you know, I, I don't, we're not looking into that future anymore. And so I think that's forcing, a, a, in a way, it's, it's forcing the crises that we're seeing and, and the moves which are being made by political elites to hold on to power in that context. But it's going to force, I think, everyone in the West to, to recalibrate and rethink about our role in the world. And that's a painful process, right? If you've been on top of the world for a long time and, and things are changing, um, it, it creates crisis. And, and more importantly than that, elites will perhaps you know, exacerbate crises in order to try to then uh, sort of take opportunities to shore up their own position. And so that's where, you know, that's, so I think the crisis for us and our experience of it is, is different from earlier generations. We really are reaching the crunch point. Um, and, and I sort of caveat all, all that with the, you know, make, so we're not too ethnocentric about this, you know, the Western empire has caused huge damage around the world. You know, we've created plenty of crises in other countries, whether it's Vietnam or whether what we've seen throughout the Middle East, um, in the global war and terror conflicts, um, there's been crises created elsewhere in the world uh, on a huge level, but for us in the West, it's been a pretty comfortable ride, right? For, I mean, our parents' generation, not all sectors in society, obviously, but, um, you know, people's you know, affluence increasing. The middle classes, I guess, that's that's, the, that's what I'm thinking of. The, and perhaps that's my background and the expectations of you know, second homes, long retirement, etc. That's, we're, 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 we're moving out of that world, I think. Um, and and so that's creating a crisis. But and I'll, I'll stop in a second. But I, I think that the, the big, the really big problem that we all have is, is that we have a democratic crisis. We we are in, in a, a period where censorship is it's become routinized. Um, you look at things like the online harm legislation, which is being pushed through in in, in Europe and in the UK. This is all sort of leading us to a point where potentially people could be significantly censored mm -hmm. that aside from all of the civil liberty issues which have been raised during the covid response um all of these are extremely worrying signs and i try not to be too dramatic about it but some people of course use terms such as totalitarianism fascism they point to china and say well look at the kind of mechanisms of control that they're implementing there and 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 a lot of what we have seen over the last two years uncomfortably uncomfortably similar to aspects of that and so i you know this is this is the big crisis for us i think we're in a in a sort of a battle for for democracy and for our freedom at the moment against um actors within our own society but also you know transnational actors as well big corporations big tech all, all of the usual suspects and so on um and yeah i think 
I mean, you've experienced this in the US, and look what we've seen over the last two years in in terms of the COVID response. It it, it was it has been shocking what has happened. Worse in Canada, worse in Australia, worse in New Zealand, but it's been pretty bad in Germany. I'll tell you that. Oh, for sure. Um, and I'm aware of that. Yeah. So you know. <laughs> so yeah, I think. <laughs> Sure, we've had crisis, and, and different sectors in society have had, you know, you know, different experiences over the last 30, 40 years. But I, I think, I think everyone, okay, maybe this is the best way of putting it. I think everyone's going to start feeling the crisis now, and the middle classes especially, um, especially with the economic situation. I hear that, Piers. I, I think a big problem is I, as you were speaking, and this is something I've been thinking about for honestly, especially over the last couple of years, really highlighted it. But I think that a lot of Western countries in recent times have been doing a poor job of upholding and exemplifying Western values. And as a result, that is causing this sort of inward collapse and disillusionment and demoralization. And I think also on an international level, it is reducing the West's own moral standing. I think for much of our lives and for many, many decades, and you know, I think still to some degree, in some aspects, not in all aspects, the West has always sort of had the moral high ground, right? So you could, so if people were critical of, you know, something that's going on in China, I mean, okay, in China right now, as we record this, they're having these very long, brutal lockdowns. They've got their ridiculous COVID zero policy. They're locking people in apartments and so on. You know, people are protesting and authorities are out there, um, you know, aggressing against the protesters. And not so long ago, it would, you know, Western nations and leaders and people really had a strong leg to stand on and say, hey, what you're doing over there is wrong. But when you can see last year, the exact same scenes happening in Australia and happening in Canada and happening in Germany, and it, it's like, well, you, you no longer really have that moral position of say, I mean, protests were banned in some of these countries, right? People were also forced to stay in their houses. People were also forced to do this. And for, so all those ideas about liberty and freedom and democracy and individual rights and civil liberties and all that stuff that you wanna advocate globally, um, it's a lot easier to do it and a lot more believable when you're actually practicing it and holding mm -hmm. on to it yourself. You're, you're, there's this rise in censorship going on. If you're gonna start mm -hmm. censoring people and being against free speech and against freedom of the press and against free, free expression, in Western countries, then how can you then go to, I don't know, Middle Eastern countries or parts of Asia and, and then say, oh, you know, it's so terrible that they're doing censorship when you're doing your own, your very own same version at home and people are supporting it. I think that's, and I don't know if people are like connecting these dots here, but to me, I think that's like a big blow that the West is kind of striking to itself. It's undermining its own values by not practicing them. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's a massive issue. For, for sure, I think it's becoming obvious, and it's in a way that it has, has not been apparent before. The, the double standard issue. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it is. You know, it would be re remiss of me not to, you know, point out the argument that many people would make from critical scholarship that actually 
the West has been practicing double standards for a very long time. And and I, and I think in terms of my, my evolution in, in scholarship, you know, I, I looked at Noam Chomsky's work and others related to him. And, and that's when I became more aware that, that the West didn't have uh, a clean pair of hands in terms of the way it had been conducting itself. You know, and go back to Vietnam, for example, that's a very good example when you look at the kind of the realities of that conflict and what was involved. Um, so I, I think, you know, the double standards have always been there. I, so I, I put it in terms of, I think it's reached a point now where they're so painfully obvious. And an example of this would be the, the outrage expressed in relation to the situation in Ukraine and, and Russia with the, with the condemnation and the language being used. Uh, I think as Condoleezza Rice was saying, condemning the illegal invasion. And of course, and people, a lot of people saying, well, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. what, what about Iraq? And, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's become certainly during the global war on terror, the 9-11 conflicts, you know, that sense that the West is very belligerent and it does not, as, as you accurately put it, it does not live up to the standards that it claims, its internal norms, as it were, has just become apparent to more and more people. Um, and, you know, th there was always a problem there, you know, I'm British, you know, look at the British Empire, <laughs> etc. Um, and so on, but it's become extreme now, and the double standards, and, and in a way, I think the post 9-11 conflicts have been very overt in, in a way that sort of in earlier eras, there was much more covert activity and so on, overthrowing regimes, etc., using the CIA and so on. The invasion of Iraq was just, you know, kicking the door down and sending the troops in and so on. Um, so I, I think it's the visibility, that's the key thing now. But I think that the visibility is now reaching a point where a lot of Western publics are very skeptical. Um, even some people within the elite are probably sort of realizing that this isn't tenable. And certainly, you know, in terms of the world stage, and this is where I think, you know, you're right. I mean, I, I'm a believer in democracy and, and, and I'm a believer, you know, that there are positive things that the Western values have in, in, in that respect and so on um and, and those are important things to hold on to but i i think at this point it's it's become apparent that um you know the way we've been conducting ourselves and the, the use of force primarily people around the world see that and they see it in a way that they haven't done before and, and this is part of, of the shifts in in the balance of power we see bricks we see these trading blocks forming and and so on. And, you know, if you go outside of the Western bubble, as it were, um, you, you, have, you meet people who have a much more skeptical take on, on the role of the West in the world. And I think it is, it, it's, that, it's the transparency of it now, it's the obviousness. It's, maybe it's just bubbling to the surface. Maybe this is the consequences of, this is what the end of empire looks like, and so on. Um, that it's creating, uh, you know, multiple problems. As, as you say, it's causing, a lot of disillusionment amongst Western publics, but it's also causing dissensus within elite blocks as well, and making really the West's position in the world, I think, increasingly challenging at a point when we should be looking towards trying to recalibrate our place in the world and to find, okay, let's go and try to produce more diplomatic approaches and to engaging you know, we need to, that's what, that's what we need to grasp hold of and move towards. 
um but it, i don't think you know we're not fully there yet but i think that's that's the the reality that we will be forced to accommodate to at some point um and and it's going to be it's going to be i think it's going to be a painful process and i think we're all living through this this the consequences of all of this and 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 the kind of strife and conflict that we're seeing within our countries and polarization as well mm. yeah well i think if you're going to say that something is wrong, then of course it helps to not be engaging in that behavior, right? Otherwise it's, it's, it's hypocrisy yeah. and it's these double standards as, as you point out, this is true on every level, not just on nations. You know, if a, a parent is uh, constantly swearing and then telling their child that uh, swearing is, yeah. is wrong, you know, the child will dutifully and rightfully notice, wait, well, you're, you're doing it, you're saying it. So how, how wrong can it be? So, yeah, I think that you're you're right. People are really seeing that. Yeah, and and, and you know, there's a kind of a sense in which people see through it, and they know that the world is changing. And you know, we and some places are looking towards China, and of course, China has a, a an authoritarian system. We don't want to go down that road, and so on. But people, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm being slightly speculative here, but you know, a sense of being fed up that the, the West's the double standards are so transparent that you know people see through it and that dramatically reduces and using a kind of a sort of real politic term but reduces our bargaining power and so on and ability to influence exactly in the way that you describe um and we might be or some of our elite plots might be the last to wake up to that of course you know if you listen to the, our you know Foreign Office officials talking in, in various platforms, you'd think that they were sort of 40 years ago in terms of their self-perception and their perception of what's going on around the world. Um, but And they probably will be the last to wake up, but um, that, that, that time is coming. Um, and fingers crossed we don't see some profound escalation in conflict, which is always possible, but, but I, I don't think that will happen. Um, those changes will come and you know that they'll be all waking up to this I mean the, the Suez crisis with Britain in, in, in you know when Britain conspired with Israel and France to, to attack Egypt and uh, then Britain got in to retake the Suez Canal that was seen through as an act of realpolitik and you know America threatened to run on the pound and so it collapsed but what, what happened at that point was it sent a powerful signal through the foreign policy elites in the UK that we don't have the power to be an empire anymore. And that was the point at which you know, decolonization started to, took off um, and so on. And so it was this kind of, in that case, it was a, it was a sharp event, um, a, a profound failure uh, to achieve what they wanted to achieve in relation to the Suez Canal. Um, but it was enough to start to shift uh, and change policy ultimately. And, you know, will we have a shock moment with Western elites or will it just be a slow kind of process going through Ukraine, other situations, the emergence of BRICS where, you know, uh, those people in power, the people really in power, you know, the people in, in, the, in the bureaucracies and the foreign policies, State Department, et cetera, start to realize that, yeah, we, we really need to change course here. Um, we can't carry on as we have been. Um, because it doesn't work anymore because people see through the deceptions and people are fed up with all the, the militarism, etc. Um, yeah, I, I think so. something that's challenging, um, and I see this on sort of both so-called 
sides of the political aisle is sort of striking a balance between, I guess, what people could call patriotism and also fair criticism. So you, you'll see, partic particularly on the, the right or conservative side of the aisle, I think sometimes you get people who are patriotic to the point of not being willing to listen to or entertain or even um, sort of fathom certain very fair and viable criticisms about their own country or its behavior domestically or internationally. And then more on the on the left side of the aisle, you get people who are just, you know, they want to completely, you know, they're almost like anti-patriotic, right? They want to consider the UK or the USA to be like the worst, the worst country in the world and say things like, oh, you know, it's mm -hmm. no better than it was 200 years ago. And, you know, we're doing it. it and like with many conversations, there's just this lack of nuance between essentially almost harboring this sort of hatred of one's own cult country versus on the flip side being so sort of patriotic and nationalistic that your country actually doesn't improve because you can't even acknowledge the things that are not correct, mm -hmm. right? You can't, you can't even call out, you feel like you can't even say the things that are wrong because then that's like, you know, considered an attack or it's considered an unpatriotic. You can't just call, you know, to use mm -hmm. baseball terms, you can't just fairly call balls and strikes um, in terms of the good things and the bad things. And I think that's also, I think that also plays into the polarization that you're seeing mm. in these nations where, you know, one, so one side of the aisle views the other one as not just wrong, but, but evil. And that continues to pull people apart. And then that's another weakness because then you don't even have a united nation where people can come together on certain common values and aspirations and beliefs and, you know, it, I, honestly, when I th when I think about specifically the UK and USA, for sure, I don't think um, I, I I think the external threats are far less grave than the internal ones. Uh, when I look mm. at it, I, I'm seeing a lot of inward inward collapse and inward inward mm. destruction. Um, yes, I know that there are foreign influences that impact certain things and can shape thinking and whatever, but I'm kind of like, man, stuff needs to be fixed. Stuff needs to be mm. fixed at home, right? It needs to be fixed at home. Yeah, the crisis is here. The crisis is not out there as so much as it yeah. is within yeah, our Vlad borders. Vladimir Putin is not the, the, the source of the problems in America or the, US, or the UK. Or yeah, although he does get blamed for everything, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he does, but, but, that, but that's, that's the point, right? I'm kind of like, man. A remarkably capable baddie, <laughs> it seems. Yeah. Yeah, and it's I mean, and it's it's also interesting that it's okay to um you know, it's okay to blame Russia, but I also feel like China gets let off the hook, um, <laughs> gets let off the hook a lot. Um, it's yeah. okay for the baddies to be to be Russian for whatever reason, but uh you know you're you're not meant to say anything when it comes to China or their you know CCP. I, I think it's a really important point you raise about, okay, you have this polarizations and you, and you have a basic, you're talking about the left-right division. Um, and and, and I, I'm one of these people who've come around to this position now that the left-right dichotomy is really unhelpful and it's been really divisive in politics. And, and the thing that's, and so I'm a great believe that we, we need to try and get beyond the left-right thinking. Um, and what struck me, you know, for example, just to give a concrete example, in the case of COVID-19, 
what what struck me is is that the left in general in, in the US you call it the Democrats and in the UK you call it Labour but a, a lot of the left have been very very bad at realizing the the what was going on with COVID looking at the suppression of freedom of expression looking at the the loss of civil rights etc all of all the nefarious consequences of the COVID response. The left was terrible at recognizing that, but the the right tended to be better. Or people who are pushing back against COVID tended to be on, on the, to the right of the political spectrum, and so on. And so what that that, that hang out what that tells you is you know the left can be good on uh, sort of you know questioning Western foreign policy, for example, but they weren't good on COVID. And it reverses when you look at the right. And and I've experienced this, you know, looking at the COVID issue and, and mixing in a variety of circles, coming from a sort of what most people would describe as sort of a, a left-leaning academic sort of background and and, and so on. Um, that, that people on, on, on the right were very bad at understanding problems related to our foreign policy and our belligerence in the international system, but very good at picking up on COVID. So what do we take from that? What we take from that is that no, neither side has a monopoly on the truth and each side has useful things to bring to the table. And, and, and I do, you know, I do think that the crisis in the West is, you know, a lot of it's being driven by elites and people in powerful positions trying to hold on to power in, in, in a context of significant change. Um, and I think this idea of us remembering that the, the problem we have is we the people and then it's the establishment mm -hmm. left and right who we really need to be challenging and and to do that effectively i do think that we need to find ways of talking to each other across the left right divide that you know the people on the right need to find a way of talking to uh, people steeped in in Marxist theory without getting angry, and 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 the, the Marxist theorists need to be need to get used to speaking to people on the right, um, and not sort of getting really angry when they talk about you know sort of aspects of capitalism you know, ideas that you know the idea of people running their own coffee shop and, and so on and so forth. These are not bad things in principle, um, and so on. You don't rule out all of that uh, sort of ideology just because we're in a situation now where corporations are dominating and 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 we're seeing a very corrupt form of capitalism mm -hmm. um so, so trying to get people to understand each other across the political divide and then start to recognize perhaps who are the really big threats to us is a really really important thing to do and if, if we can do that then maybe we can start to move beyond the kind of polarization we have um which is you know, which is worrying, obviously. Um. Mm. Well, I, th I think an issue is that I'm, I'm so glad you said that you said some things there that are really important, because I do think that oftentimes people, how would I put it, people forget, people can get so tribal and so siloed, that they forget, as you said, that they don't have a monopoly on the truth or the facts, right? Or they even can forget that the so-called other side, I don't even like this left-right dichotomy like yourself, that the other side um, has a purpose, right? I think a lot of people on the left just think, okay, we're right about everything and everyone on the right is wrong about everything. A lot of people on the right think, well, we are obviously right about everything and people on the left are wrong about everything. And with that, neither side can see its blind spots. Right. Every yeah. single person in this world has blind spots. We all have blind spots and 
by definition, just like if you're in a car, you cannot see your own blind spot. You can't see it. You need someone who hasn't, if, if we're standing facing each other, I mean, you literally can, we have a certain field of vision. If we're standing and facing each other, you cannot see what is directly behind you, right? I can see what's by I can see what's behind you and I can see what's behind you to your side. I can see what's in front of me. I can see to, you know, a, cer a certain angle. I'm not sure the number of degrees our field of vision is. It's probably, I don't know, 200, maybe two, 200 or so degrees that we can see, right? Yeah. Um, but then that leaves the uh, 160 behind you that, that you can't. And so you need someone else there. And actually the more perspectives you have, um, you know, some people will be right about some things. Some people will be wrong about some things, but actually the more voices you have, if you're able to have those mature conversations and like you said, not get, not get angry and not get hostile and not get overly tribal or insulting or whatever, then you'll see, oh, actually we've now got a better, a better picture. We've got more of a 360 field of view here where each person is adding their, their perspective and their opinion and their experience and their ideas. And to me, this is, this is actual, um, this is actual intellectual diversity, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, we hear a lot about these terms, you know, this term diversity, but it's like, well, what actually, what does that mean? Is that just having a bunch of people with different skin tones who think the same thing or are saying the same thing? Or does that actually mean having a range of perspectives and experiences mm -hmm. and ideas? And then, yeah, you put them all together and you get a lot more for it. So I think that the, the, the lack of will or desire to allow anyone who doesn't completely align with you um, any sort mm -hmm. of like credence or, or charity or validity to their view or something. Uh, number one, I think it's immature. I think it's, I think it's quite an immature perspective, but I think it also just prevents things from moving forward. It prevents solutions mm -hmm. from being found. If you are unwilling, you know, if you're in the UK and yeah. people who are, conservatives are unwilling to talk to their, you know, people on who are in labor and vice versa, or Republicans are unwilling to talk to Democrats and vice versa, which, which really happens. I mean, like yeah. that's a, that's a real thing. You have people who like, they won't even talk to each other. And I'm just like, well, of course you're going to have problems. Like, how are you going to, how are you going to solve anything if um, you won't even, you won't even talk? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I agree entirely. And, and if you think about this in terms of, you know, what, what do we mean by democracy? Sort of, what do we mean by the public sphere? And, you know, you know, when you see these ideas evolving and you go back to enlightenment thinking and so on, you know, the idea is that you don't have two camps, two tribes, two uh, red and the blue, and you stake out your position and then, and then it's a fight to the death, as, as it were. Democracy is supposed to be about people interacting communicating debating issues finding where there's common ground finding the best ways of dealing with problems and that could be sort of you know, practical issues in society or it could be in relation to values and so on and and this is this is what is democracy is meant to be about it's not meant to be about tribalism and 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 this is what we've lost we've lost it with the you know, as, as you've alluded to that we had the culture of deplatforming and so on and and people on the left won't have these people on because they're seen as x y and z and so on um and and that just as you say it it, it stops the ability for dialogue understanding and it also stops the ability to move forward or to develop a society 
And, you know, I sometimes think of ease in terms of, you know, coming from an academic background of, you know, what, what do you do as a researcher or a scientist? You, you don't exclude people or arguments because if you do that, you run the risk that you've just excluded the person who, who might have the right answer or the right theory um, and you haven't allowed it to be evaluated. So how do you move forward in science? You move forward by allowing open dialogue, you know, civilized debate, ideally. Um, and, and then things improve. And it's the same goes for democracy and society. I, I, I don't have this kind of very minimalist view of democracy that it's just about, you know, being able to get rid of really bad leaders. I mean, that's one interpretation of how democracy should be. But, you know, I, I think we should all hope and want something better than that. And democracy is about sort of bringing people together, finding areas of common values, but also finding ways of, yeah, advancing society. Not, not in some, I don't have some kind of, you know, Elon Musk kind of vision of the future <laughs> at, at all. Um, but, but you know, we, we can find things, as I think you alluded to earlier, you know, sort of, you know, you can see signs of progress throughout history. History has not just been this eternal sort of plunge into darkness with no progress forward. You know, there are signs of, uh, you know, substantive improvements which are worth holding on to. So things can get better, but they can only get better when we, when, when we have the open dialogue where we, we get try to get away from party politics. Um, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's corrosive on, on free thinking and it's corrosive on our ability as, as a society and as communities to, to improve our lot, I think, to, to be caught in, in, in that kind of struggle. And, and it's, we're in a phase now where we're at a time when we need to I think we have to think quite radically, right? I, I think we have to, you know, and I, I've been saying this in relation to the COVID issue, um, this has indicated some very big problems with things such as big tech entities, World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, all of these entities who've got a very particular vision of the future, right? Yes. <laughs> Where they want to take us and so on. And, you know, we, we really, to, 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 to really start to challenge that or subject it to due academic process, it really does require us to um, sort of try and maybe extract ourselves from the Democrat, Republican, Labour, Conservative sort of tribalism mentality um, and, and find new ways of organizing possibly as well. I, I'm, I'm a great believer in grassroots pushback. I think when enough people start organizing at a local level, um, you, you know, you don't need a huge number of people to start to really push for significant change. And, and I think, you know, a real drive for democracy, for, for a, a new, a better kind of democracy from a grassroots level is, is pretty important now um, in order to start to steer our, our ship away from, I mean, there are some dark there are some worrying visions out there, aren't there, about uh, digitized society, um, you know, technocratic society. And, you know, these things, you know, how powerful they are is something which you could debate. But there are people who are there and, um, and pushing those agendas. And, um, you know, a lot of it looks, to me at least, very, very undemocratic. So I, I think, you know, now's the time to... to, to rapidly improve um, the way we talk to each other, get out of the existing paradigms, um, and then yeah, start to start to find ways of, of building communities and, and so on, and building movements in a way which do give us a fighting chance to get back 
everything that we've lost in the last two years, but also that we've all been progressively losing, uh, I think, for a long time um, sure. and so on. Yeah, I, I tweeted some months back that I said, I don't remember when we collectively elected Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates to be <laughs> leaders of the entire world. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're right. It's it's extremely undemocratic because you just have these, you know, these bodies, you know, whether you're talking about the World Economic Forum or, you know, the, obviously there's the, the WEF out there. And, you know, I'm like, who, who, who wants, like, who, who voted, who voted for, like, it's like people just created an organization and no one voted put, for yeah yeah like someone just put themselves <laughs> in power and is like okay this is uh this is the future this is what the human and i'm like wait like who are you who like yeah. who, who are you like why 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 should we be going along with this something i did want to ask you pierce um is what are your thoughts on the use and i would argue massive weaponization recently um of the terms misinformation and disinformation because these two words seem to just be being used to just shut down conversations and to encourage and justify and rationalize censorship and deplatforming and all these other things. And I've noticed that these terms, misinformation and disinformation, are often levied as accusations by people who, by definition, are also are peddling misinformation and disinformation, right? The mainstream no. media love these, love these terms. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Give, give me two hours. I mean, I, I've been giving talks. <laughs> I've been giving talks on this recently. I, I gave okay. a talk recently at um, an all-party parliamentary group in in the UK on on the COVID response in relation, and and it picked up on these issues of disinformation. I mean, this this these terms are, are now seeped into the mindset of politicians, academics, and even a lot of the public, and certainly mainstream journalists. I mean, these are replacement terms, right, for, for conspiracy theory. They used to, any any argument that people didn't like is, well, that's a conspiracy theory, obviously. And so now it's, well, that's disinformation. Um, and I think it's being used in exactly the way that you describe. Um, it's essentially weaponized. Um, I mean, I know that my own research in relation to the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, and the question of the whistleblowers from that organization who were raising questions about the investigation into chemical attacks in Syria. You know, whenever these uh, scientists were raising these issues, one of the regular terms being used by sort of foreign policy establishment in the US and UK was that that's disinformation or it's Russian disinformation, etc. Using essentially to discredit the, the, the scientists who are raising questions. And we've seen it in, in bucket loads with COVID-19, of course, mm -hmm. um, medical disinformation. You see the United Nations, the World Health Organization. You see this uh, the fact-checking counter disinformation industry. And they sit down and allocate you know, a truth index to uh, various positions. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there's a very basic you know, point here. And you go back to John Stuart Mill and his defense of, you know, on liberty or, or the freedom of speech. And, and his point is that censorship, all, all censorship relies upon an erroneous assumption of infallibility. The person doing the censoring assumes that I'm right. Fauci assumes that he's right on, on COVID-19 and therefore they're then justified to censor in some shape or form opinions which, which are not in line with that. And it's, it's irrational because you can never be sure you're absolutely right. 
Um, and but but this is this is where we are at. We are in the extraordinary situation now, where I, I think that the disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation terminology is now seeping into the, the online harm legislation. You see people being regularly, routinely having been kicked off various platforms during COVID nineteen because they've breached um, community guidelines in relation to disinformation. Um, mm -hmm. I mean. I was kicked off LinkedIn uh, about a week ago. And, and actually with Panda, we are doing a series of, of interviews with scientists, but also artists and also members of the public who've been silenced in one way or another because of, because of these strategies uh, during COVID-19. And it, it truly is off the charts. It, it, this is creating a, a form of censorship, which is profoundly dangerous and profoundly dangerous for our societies. Um, but you know, the one thing that, that is, is really kind of sort of sort of unsettled me is, you know, in, in my field or part of the field I come from communication studies, you know, 10 years ago, that, that, that they would have been able to see through the illogicality of, of, of labeling things such as disinformation and acting to censor them. They would have remembered John Stuart Mill's defense of free speech. But there's so much money being poured into research on this um, that you know that they're just getting pulled into it. So you see a huge glut of academic papers on disinformation and misinformation. How do we immunize the public? How do we protect the public from disinformation? Um, and it's you know, it's profoundly illogical, undemocratic, and it's just right to be abused by powerful actors. They don't like what you're saying. They label you a disinformation super spreader, as I think, um, was it Peter McCullough was labeled that? Um, <laughs> Probably quite a few people. <laughs> you know, I, I think Joe Rogan got labeled that. I mean, I, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm hazarding a guess here. Have you been accused of it at some oh, point? Of, of course. Oh, of, of course. course. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was vocally <laughs> opposed to every single measure um, since <laughs> February, March 2020. From, yeah. the, from the so-called two weeks to slow the spread, I was raising red, raising the red flag all over the place. So, yes, I've had uh, thousands of people accuse me of that. And, um, you know, I've had uh, I've had YouTube videos that I've had to take down. I've had uh, certain podcast episodes which I was not able to host on YouTube or which I had yeah. to put on other channels and so on. Many of them with doctors. Um, and yeah, this is this is where we are now, you know, I'll, Twitter have their policies, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all these big platforms, they've all been heavily policing it throughout the whole thing. And mm -hmm. as you know, of course, a lot of the things that were marked as misinformation or disinformation earlier on are now 100% correct, verified facts. Um, yeah, and there, there is an opportunity because I'm sure you're aware of the legal action that, that Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kuldorf uh, are taking against the White House for collusion with big tech, uh, labeling them. They're, they're, they were the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we know, Collins and Fauci were talking about you know, <laughs> a, a hit job, I think, on a you know, <laughs> smear campaign, as it were, on the Great Barrington Declaration when it came out. But you know, but that's going to be very interesting because you know wh whatever Elon Musk is is, is up to with, with Twitter and so on, that's one process which is going on at the moment. But that you know, with COVID nineteen, you do you have exactly that. You have a situation where the, what the authorities were claiming 
is is becoming very very clear now was incorrect in multiple ways mm -hmm. and so it's going to be very interesting especially with sort of legal moves such as that by very high profile academics who are saying right we are accused of disinformation and we're going to challenge you on this legally whether this is a, a moment where we can learn how flawed these terms are and, and i'm you know I, I think this is an opportunity on that front and i know uh, through Panda, we want to do some work on on looking at this, looking at the accuracy of statements from people such as Fauci, and then looking at the way in which the disinformation industry is being integrated into legislation, the way it's you know becoming even worse than it has been over the last two years potentially. Um, because we should be able to learn from this, right? Um, as yes. we should have learned from Iraq and WMD, don't always believe what the government's telling you um and so on but we should be able to learn from covid um that uh, governments and leading health authorities can get things very badly wrong and one of the reasons of course going back to mill why they get it wrong is because they're censoring people who might have the right analysis and that exactly seems to be the case here with covid19 so it could be a powerful sort of seminal moment um I've, i'm being probably a little bit too optimistic there but but maybe it could turn out to be that because i think it's you know it's i made a comment in a paper i wrote recently is it was and i made a reference to a behavioral science uh, article from 2020 talking about the need to immunize people from the effects of disinformation and conspiracy theory and so on. And of course, completely buying into all of the narrative on COVID-19, which has now been seen to be so problematic by so many scientists. Uh, and, I, and I just made the comment that reading that kind of paper, the reason was the longest suicide, intellectual suicide night in history, <laughs> because they're, they're signed themselves up and then they're legitimating, essentially, behavioral science, manipulative techniques to guide people away from what they think is disinformation. Um, so, you know, you've, you've got to kind of hope that at some point um, people wake up and smell the coffee on this and and we, 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 rid, our, we rid our minds of, of, of this disinformation, misinformation idea. You know, people have ideas and different opinions. And, you know, as Mill said, it's okay for people to have a wrong opinion wrong opinions can be useful. It's useful to highlight and people can absorb and think about it and it highlights more accurate analyses and so on. Um, and we need to get back to that, right? We need to get back to tolerating opinions and so on, which we don't agree with, and then debating it. Um, yes. Even if that's difficult, right? And even if it's, you know, uh, painful for some people and so on, it's, it's important that we, we have that environment within the normal limitations of, of free speech and so on, incitement to violence, hatred, and, and so on. But you know, certainly on, on scientific issues, for example, you know, it's the idea of labeling as disinformation vast swathes of the medical community, which is what's happened, is is clearly the heights of insanity. Um, agreed. Agreed. Piers, it's been so good to so good to talk to you, man. Thank you for spending time to discuss all this important stuff. Where can people find and follow you online? Well, um, I mean, Organization for Propaganda Studies has has a website. People can put that in and, and Google that. Panda, um, who I'm doing a lot of work with, um, look, uh, World Wide Web, pandata.com, uh, .org rather. Um, and we've got the censorship series. We've got interviews with CJ Hopkins. We've got one coming up with Robert Malone 
um, of people who have been censored. So, and some of my work appears on their website um, and elsewhere. I have a WordPress site. Um, Propaganda and Focus is, is an online journal which I run with Dan Brody, and we've got about thirty. Uh, range of academics and other experts writing about propaganda. So propaganda and focus is a place for people to go for looking at various critical material on, on propaganda. Um, but I, I think you know, to take a look at the Panda website. Look at take a look at the organisation of propaganda studies, um, and I'm on Twitter as well. And for people who want to read dull, long, scholarly things, go to Google Scholar. And <laughs> look at some of my my academic papers there, which you know, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing myself a disservice there, but um, you know, there's a lot of material out there. But Panda and uh, Organization of Propaganda Studies are the first port of call, I think. Awesome. Dr. Piers Robinson, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.